We are live. Hello and welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the fourth and final webinar of our July 2015 series titled Learning and Leading in a Connected World. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share with your network. I'm Sam Sarma and I teach writing and rhetoric at Stony Brook University in New York. Along with Mahab Belli, I'll be your host for, for today. We're excited to be speaking with Asao Inoue, um, Tanya Lau, Len Singh. Uh, I, 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 I believe Len is not yet in. Uh, let us hope he'll, he'll be able to join us. Simon Anser and Tanya Sheko. And, um, and the topic for today's discussion is educators collaborating across national, cultural, and other borders. Um, before we dive into our chat, let's go over a couple quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning um, and CLMOC, C-L-M-O-O-C, or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. Uh, we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout session. This webinar is also being co-streamed at National Writing Project's EducatorInnovator.org website. Each week throughout this series, um, until now that is, on, on Connected Learning TV, we have explored themes and questions related to CLMOOC, so Connected Learning Massively Open Online Collaboration, designed by the National Writing Project Educator and Inno Educator Innovator uh, Partners, as a collaborative knowledge building and sharing experience open to anyone interested in making, playing, learning together about connected learning. Um, Maha, I'd like to um, follow up on an, an introduction to the speakers and an uh, introduction to the theme of today's final discussion. Hi, I'm Mabeli. I'm at the American University in Cairo, uh, and I'm an associate professor of practice there. And I'm also co-facilitator of EdConfect, uh, which is, uh, you know, sort of the partner for this uh, conversation and uh, the topic of this of this hangout, you know, educators across concepts. And so, before we get into the, the discussion, I'd like to give everyone a chance to introduce themselves. And we've got a really wide range of contexts just among the, the few of us over here. So, um, let's start with reverse alphabetical order. So, first name. So, Tanya with a Y, then Tanya with an I, and then go backwards. Uh, go ahead, Tanya. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Tanya Lau, and um, I'm um, an e-learning specialist working in a uh, large government organisation. Um, as Maha mentioned, I'm also involved in the edcontext.org project, which is um, uh, you know, a really exciting project uh, that we'll sort of talk about a little bit more um, in this Hangout. I think over to you, Tanya Shiko. Hi, I'm Tanya Shiko. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'm Tanya Shiko and I'm a teacher librarian in a 9 to 12 secondary boys' school in Melbourne, Australia. So right at the bottom of Australia. Um, Simon? Hello everybody, I'm Simon. I'm not very good with things like alphabet or math, so I wasn't quite sure I was going to be next. So that's um, <laughs> me. So I'm Simon and I'm from France, but I'm English. 
uh, sort of English. I've been in France half my life, so I'm not quite sure if I'm English or French. And I work in a French university teaching English, which is a laugh. And uh, I work with a lot of different countries. And we're trying to mess up a bit how we teach languages because I think it needs messing up. So that's what I'm doing. I can help thanking you for that introduction. It was very, uh, very meaningful while being slightly funny. Thank you. Um, I think it's that next like is going to be. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, is it? Oh, is it my turn? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, hello. My name is Asal Inoy. I am uh, an associate professor at the University of Washington uh, in Tacoma and also the uh, director for university writing here. Uh, I, what else did you want? I don't know what else to say about myself. Um, except I've been in different contexts <laughs> over the last 10 years uh, or so of my teaching life. Okay, I think, I think hopefully we'll have a lot of chances to unpack our contexts more as we go along. And I think no matter what we have ready to say, as we hear whatever we have to say, we might start to think about um, other things. Um, so let's start with just the topic of why is, is the, the topic of context important? Why does it matter when we talk about education? So I mean, like we said, people here from different backgrounds, and, and I think that makes us sensitive to how educational discourse doesn't always account for context. Um, so I'd like people to think about, you know, how does their practice account for context, or in what ways does educational discourse, do they see it not accounting for context? Um, so who wants to go first? I don't think we've agreed on that. So. Anyone who's ready to talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anybody, please. Later on, as you as you think, you know, come up with your thoughts. <laughs> Later on, uh, Maha and I will also describe Air Context, the organization that is collaborating, partnering with uh, CLMOC and uh, NWP at this time to uh, educate innovators to do these sessions. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that context to open up or add to the conversation. But yeah, um, please, anybody. Please uh, tell us more about your context and education. Just um, uh, I I can start I guess. Um, just talking sort of, um, I guess quite broadly and and generally I guess at 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 its core it's about sort of um, understanding um sort of where your your students uh, are coming from in terms of um uh and and. You know, you, you actually need to have an appreciation of that that context in order to be able to actually, um, uh, you know, design appropriate learning experiences that are meaningful to them. Um, so I guess that at a basic level, um, there's that, and um, I think, um, you know, that that that's that that's something that sort of affects anyone who's um, who's uh, either teaching or um, in the business of um, designing things, um, learning experiences for students. Okay. Do we just talk? Uh, do we just go ahead and say something if we if we want to yeah, respond ahead. or add? Oh, uh, I was, you know, context is one of those funny uh, words um, that we use a lot in education because it can mean a whole bunch of different things, um, especially in the in terms of uh, thinking about. 
how does context affect one's pedagogies or how does it affect um, what one does when one assesses, say, a writing program, um, which are usually the things that I'm concerned with. Um, so I, uh, context is, of course, very important, and I don't think anyone would disagree with that, but I think we often use it as this, as this large bucket to, to mean just about everything that we could take into account when we talk about pedagogy. So, so I'm usually telling or asking folks to consider exactly what they mean by context when they're trying to understand, say, how do I teach these particular students in this particular university or college or school um, this particular curriculum? <laughs> uh, so I, um, and I have found it, it um, really helpful uh, to do a kind of um, inductive approach. So instead of thinking about bringing things in, I think about having things bubble out uh, or up from the students, where wh whatever we have. Um, so I'm not, I've never really been a, a big advocate of um, finding the, the, the you know, quote unquote best and brightest. Um, I'm really much more interested in teaching the people who are here. Uh, so for me, uh, the in inductive approach tends to work better. That's being really, really general. But so when I, to be a little bit more specific about what I mean by um, rethinking context. For me, because of the work I do, it's really all about race um, for me. I realize there are other dimensions of difference and other dimensions of uh, oppression and things like that that we could talk about or that we could look at, um, uh, but I'm not a specialist in all those other areas. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I've done most of my work in terms of race um, and racial formations. And so those are the things, that's the stuff that I tend to want to look at more carefully uh, in my own writing programs and in my own classrooms um, because they tend to be in a, in a U.S. context, um, ones that are really vital and important. Uh, so for me, context is always this kind of a word that you have to put an asterisk by and then explain really the kind of context we're talking about, you know. Can I say something about that? Okay. Uh, I found it really interesting that you use the word bucket because I think that this is the thing which, when I thought about the word context, my immediate reaction was to think in terms of something which surrounds us. Whereas, in fact, when I looked at the, the, the development of the word, this actually came from a word which meant to weave and I think that in my practice, this is what I want to bring out, is how we are weaving constantly these contexts, which we perhaps think of something as bounded, but in fact they're very dynamic. And I think that in my work, which is to draw people's voices out, you can't avoid this flux and network of strands which are stopping people to speak, which are encouraging people to speak all the time and stopping other people speaking in their turn. And this is one thing which, working with a, a project which is called Clavier, which is now working through maybe 10 different countries, is something which is more and more obvious to us, that these spaces are actually having a great effect on the people in them and vice versa. And I think this... <laughs> event that we're doing is rather the same. It, it is not disconnected from the work that we're doing elsewhere. It's symptomatic of that.
Uh, Tanya, did you want to add or follow up to that? Tanya S? Yes. <laughs> okay, yes. Um, yes, I agree that the word con context um, can have so many different meanings. Um, so when I started thinking about context, I thought that <clears throat> how disconnected I felt as a very young child in school because there was no context. So first of all, I was a child of Russian migrants. Russian and German, and uh, and and so that part of my life was kept very separate from my school life, which was the real life. So it's almost like I had a secret life, um, and and I really found it difficult to understand my place in the world um, because there was no there was no context. There was no why was I learning these things? Why why was I playing tic tac toe? I had no idea. No one else was asking that question. Um, <clears throat> I was never able to articulate the fact that I had these thoughts or that I did lead a double life and so I was interested when my own children um, started preschool in a Montessori school that they they immediately had a context for example they had a puzzle uh, which which was a map of the world and and each little country had um, had a tiny little, I can't really say, like a handle, so it was in order to develop fine motor skills, but they had a sense of where they were in the world and I thought that's really helpful and then they had um, a story time that situated people in the history of, in the, in the history of the world, so I think from an early age it's important to understand that children do need that context to be situated and, and if we talk about um, learning and not teaching then that comes from the person, the individual um, and, and the individual's background so whether it's coming from a different country or speaking another language or anything else. Can I can I quickly add a, a dimension to the notion of context that we're talking about here while also introducing uh, and I'll ask Maha and Tanya to add more the uh, the little grassroots organization or uh, network of teachers from around the world that we have started putting together in the last few years uh, when Tanya was talking about context and the little pieces of countries um, I was thinking about how people in the network world dominated by the big media and companies that are ruling, you know, dominating in transnational higher education, people tend to forget their own little country with a handle. They don't seem to have, seem to have a handle. They don't seem to realize that it's I'm here. I'm limited by my uh, context, by my perspective, by my upbringing, by my knowledge, by my cultural and epistemological worldview. Right? It's as if if you're out there on the internet, you are everywhere. You're not everywhere. You're still here. Uh, that everybody else is not able to understand you. You're still talking your language and your jargon. It was in 2012, I think, when Maha and I started talking about the big X smokes where star professors from global metropolises started, just um, discovered, um, it seemed as if they just discovered YouTube. I'm not kidding. And for many years, it looks as if the big star professors had not really paid attention to YouTube. They were like, what? Well, I don't like the you. I need a me tube. And uh, a bunch of computer science uh, professors 
uh, into around 2007 gave them, hey, here's a MeTube. You know what that was? That's MOOC, the ex-MOOCs. It was a MeTube in the sense that they would enter this tube and travel back in time. So that the notion of power, colonial structures, um, uh, colonial structures, the notion, it, it felt as if the Western world in particular was moving, walking back in time, that all the discourses about colonialism, all the discourse about power, all the discourses that intellectuals of the West were aware in the 1960s and 70s, suddenly these folks came out of nowhere without their clothes on and they were in their meat tube going back. And it, it seemed as if we really needed to do something to bring together the educators from around the world and listen to them. So we wanted to invite them to share their stories, share their perspectives, share their teaching practices like we're doing today by using a blog, a Facebook, uh, and Twitter. And our goal was not very different from what they, the, the big people, uh, you know, big, uh, uh, big M MOOC professors were trying to do, to connect to the world, to share our knowledge, to learn from others. But it felt as if some people really needed to be reminded. Um, and, and reminded that it's not about numbers, it's about people, it's about community and connection. Uh, it felt as if we needed to be educated more and hopefully educate others in the process. So many people like us started connecting the dots between countries and contexts and cultures. And the other notion that I wanted to add now is the crossing context. Pedagogy was shifting paradigm from context-bound activity, teaching as a context-bound activity where the teacher and student belong to the same place, to context-crossing activity, which is how do you teach 50,000 people in 50 different places who have completely different perspectives, who may pretend, who may mimic that they understand you because you have a big name, but who may not really understand or follow what you're trying to say. And so what we need to do is to think about a completely new paradigm to, I, I see uh, Simon is using the word megaphone, to really give people a, a voice, to, an opportunity to speak back and forth instead of the huge megaphone. And, and, and otherwise we will be, you know what will happen is that people around the world will at some point after two or three years, I, I'm afraid that's already happened, will take us, takes, uh, will start uh, taking us, uh, stop taking us seriously because they look at us they're with a big microphone, uh, megaphone, and they, uh, we look megalomania because we are, have connection and we're high-speed internet, and then people would, when they go away, we're left with, with this embarrassing uh, empty shell of a, of a device called MOOC. It shouldn't be. It should be filled with meaning and substance and community. And therefore, I think along with the paradigm shift that we needed to make in terms of crossing context through educational conversation, through community, through relationship building, we really needed to save and preserve that tool for us to be used for the future. Otherwise, we will throw the baby with the bathwater. Everybody will go home laughing about the big B professors who, big M professors who just found out YouTube and then nobody's there. Anyway, I'll stop right there. I'd love to hear from, from people here how they, in their own context, in their own practice, uh, try to work on this, you know, what, what Sam has just described of cross-contextual, you know, how do you, like, for example, uh, I know Simon and Claudia, you're talking about language learners, and they all come from different contexts, and, and they don't live in the same place, how do you deal with that? And also, Asal talks about how he brings in race and he brings it from the students, and then how does that work because the students are all very different from each other and they have very different experiences. And also Tanya and Tanya both work in Australia where a lot of people are immigrants coming from different contexts. How do you work across these contexts? So, 
wants to go next. We're supposed to be using a, a private chat to, to let us know who goes next. Everybody's chatting there, but nobody volunteered to speak. Nobody's volunteering yet. Well, maybe I'll go ahead and uh, give it a shot. Um, when I think about um, the, the, the things I'm doing, or the, I'll just actually, how about I just say a few things about the book since you mentioned the yes, book. Please. Um, so the book uh, is um, really making an, an argument uh, about understanding the writing classroom uh, as an ecology. Um, and it's not, uh, it's thinking about that ecology mostly as a writing assessment ecology. And the, 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 the version of that ecology is an anti-racist writing assessment ecology. And that's the name of the book, Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies. Um, and so what I've tried to do is first and foremost understand the writing classroom as an ecology that is fundamentally designed by the, the assessment mechanisms in the classroom, from feedback to commenting to grading, all of it. Uh, and so this obviously starts outside the classroom from placement and testing and other things that, that are not directly shaped necessarily by that classroom, but the classroom has to work um, with the contexts of assessment that that classroom has to use or be used by. And they're usually some form of the same things. So in, my, in all of my contexts and all my uh, the sites that I've worked from, Fresno State, for this and here, um, have, they've, been, um, they've been majority minority, if you will, um, which means that they, most of the students that um, are in the classrooms are students of color. And most of them are working class. And, that, and most of them are working as well while they're going to school. So they're, uh, uh, what, they're not really the, the, um, the, the main, uh, uh, they're not the, the traditional, I guess. I mean, I don't even know if that's a really, really good term anymore, traditional. Uh, uh, nevertheless, they have lots of complex things that they bring into the classroom. And so the, the book is about thinking about ways in which we can redesign a set writing assessments so that it makes better uh, uh, ecology in the classroom for learning. And so I'm uh, really more interested in thinking about how do we, uh, stop um, creating certain kinds of hierarchies through um, through language practices and the evaluation of language, um, uh, and thinking more carefully about non-cognitive things, um, uh, and thinking more carefully about uh, the way the ways in which we can um, uh, embrace or um, uh, value in very real ways the labor of students. Uh, in the classroom and, and show that labor in very well. That last part about the labor is really, it's really, um, this is the first step in a lot, that's a longer pro project of mine, um, thinking about labor in the classroom, but it starts here. Uh, so so that, that's, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start, stop there um, because I don't, I don't want to, uh, I'll let folks find the book if they want to <laughs> read it, but, but it's, um, it's really, uh, that thinking about, thinking about ways to, to make that classroom uh, writing assessment, an anti-racist project, um, and doing so by first thinking about our writing assessment ecologies, not thinking about pedagogy. I don't believe that that's the right way to go. Um, I think that when we, we usually think about pedagogy first, and then we figure out how to assess the stuff we get. And I think that's the wrong way. I think, we have to think, I think that our assessment practices drive most of the learning in the class. It's not all the learning, but it, it drives a lot of the learning, and certainly students feel that the first and the, and the, and the, and the hardest because they care a lot. They have to care about it. If they're savvy, smart students, which most of my students are, they care about their grades and they care about how they're being assessed because they should. 
they know that other people will um, will uh, will care and want to know about them. Uh, and so we have to figure out how to deal with all that um, and make it a very present thing in the classroom. Okay, um, I'd just like to chip in, firstly, with a question. So we had a question from Gretchen Teague, I think that's it. And she asked, in what ways are you connecting to educators across the world? And are your students connecting to other learners? And what are the results? Okay, so I'd like to chip in on that. Uh, so I'm working, as I mentioned very briefly before, on a project called Clavier. And Clavier, that stands for Connected Learning and Virtual Intercultural Exchange Research. Wow. And, and that is, uh, if you like, is a Trojan horse <laughs> for messing up how people have learnt languages in university classrooms over the past X years. Take over. <laughs> <laughs> and it has been a very useful tool because we have done quite a lot of research into what actually people were looking for when they were asking people to learn languages. And one of the first things they were looking for was the ability to speak. Uh, a lot of the uh, political statements will say that uh, we're very upset that the French can't speak English very well. So what are we going to do about it? And then we'll see lots of ministerial pronouncements at how we're going to open up the classrooms. So they're actually saying we want to open up the classrooms. They're actually saying we want there to be twinning virtual connections between classrooms. So this is something which they are actually aware of and they, they want to they want to promote it. But at the same time they're caught in this paradigm which is tied up with the editors, the publishers, with the assessment which is based on a completely different paradigm and the teachers training of course is all based around the same thing which has been going on for years. So the question that we asked ourselves is how do we change this? And clearly if you want people to develop their language communication ability then they need to communicate with people that they actually want to communicate with. And I think that this is one thing which we started right from the start was to think about the classroom. Four years ago, we went and left the classrooms that we were assigned. We walked out and we disappeared. And we walked around the campus looking for a, a Wi-Fi enabled space. And we found a space which nobody wanted, which was an open space, which was like a corridor. And we squatted it. And after about two weeks, the administration discovered that we had <laughs> abandoned our classrooms and we were actually taking up space which was then in between different departments and they weren't quite sure who was in charge of this and to such an extent that we actually are still there four years later. And with the help of our colleagues in other universities, in Warwick University, in Krakow, in Poland, in Finland, in other countries which I can go on about, we have gradually been using these levers to demonstrate that if you actually enable students to speak with people that they actually want to speak with, that's to say people of their age, mm -hmm. using the tools which they choose, not ones defined necessarily by the university, so that's another thing, so using 
tools which may be, I want to write a letter. I don't feel comfortable with the internet. Hmm. I want to use Facebook. I want to use Skype. I want to use email. Using the tools which they choose to have the conversations that they want about the subjects which they want to converse about. And through that, we've been able to change the assessment. So the assessment now no longer is based on the classroom. It's no longer based on our content. It's based on the student's research and the student's development and the conversations which they have with other people who share their interests. So this has been a little revolution yeah. because suddenly other teachers are, are actually in our, in our local environment are beginning to realize that yes this actually does speak to them too because our students strangely are working and that didn't used to happen. They're actually investing huge quantities of time to produce videos on YouTube for exams which then become another little Trojan horse for a future generation who will then see, ah yes, well maybe I can do that. Maybe I can go to Poland. Maybe I can go to the UK. Maybe I actually count for other people. And this is the other interesting thing is that our university in France is based on a system which is, means that anybody who's a baccalaureate goes to university. When they have conversations with people in the UK, the people in the UK, they have to pay £9,000 per year to go to this university, the Warwick University. So clearly the contexts are not at all the same and that is a great dynamic force for these kids that we're teaching who have never met people like that, who've never met people who've traveled around the world, who've never actually had these experiences and generation after generation the students are coming back and they're speaking to other learners and gradually our networks, our communities are growing and things are really changing. It's extraordinary. I just want to finish with one thing. The issue of space the learning space, widening out, making it a space where even somebody who doesn't want to speak in a classroom can have their voice in their house or they can write because they're choosing to do that. That's one thing. So the assessment was really key. Another thing which was key was to break down the one teacher, one classroom because that is just death to any innovation or any conversation. If you wanted to stop any conversation at all, you, you, you basically design classrooms as we designed them over the past hundred years. You stick one teacher in one classroom and you have an inspector who goes up and down the corridor to make sure there's not too much noise. Well, we've turned it on its head. We now have two or three teachers working with 60 students who make lots and lots of noise. And not only do they make lots of noise physically, but they also make lots of noise virtually and that noise resonates year after year after year and it's to an extent that the last conversation I had in August was with other colleagues in other disciplines who are then cutting on to this idea that yes we need to rethink learning because the kids in this university it's not because they go to Clermont-Ferrand University that they have a ticket to a nice life they don't have a ticket, they just have a piece of paper. 
So they have to rethink the whole thing. And I think that this is what that we're doing at the moment with us together is crucial. This is no longer banking system of education. It, it's in debt. I'll stop. Um, can I add a quick thing and then I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Tanya to share more about the blog that came up in this conversation before. To respond to the question from, the, from our audience um, up there about how we engage our students, um, I, for most of my classes I've always connected them to authors and scholars but also students, fellow students around this, uh, the US. And in the last few years I've actually taken that transnational by connecting um, them to my colleagues in the ed context and other uh, cross-cultural transnational communities um, and students in other parts of the world. That's one uh, way of doing it is virtual uh, conferencing while during class time if uh, time zones and other uh, technologies permitting. But the second um, strategy is to use blogs and other devices like Simon was talking about. I think Tanya has more to say about that. Um, firstly, I just wanted to say that I really admire you, Simon, for having been proactive in making these changes and that's very inspiring to me because sometimes I feel that I can't really make a big difference, that um, that the, the, the machine of school um, just keeps going as it has been um, in the past and that the small things that I do won't make a difference. But I suppose um, in my own context as a teacher librarian is a bit limiting because uh, people are not sure what my role is and so they think that I'm associated with libraries which are associated with books and I spend my time reading fiction and in fact I don't have time to read fiction because I've just discovered all the wonderful MOOCs and conversations that I can have with people. Um, <clears throat> so starting from small things um, and uh, for a long time I've see I, I don't have a class that I own so I, I have to be I'm a bit like Voldemort from Harry Potter I need to inhabit a body so I inhabit a teacher's body uh, co-op the class and hope to teach collaboratively and ch and change things a little bit because um, for example if I if I encourage them to create blogs and the teacher too then um, already that's starting from the context of the individual because the blog is the space that belongs to the individual otherwise everything that student writes um, just stays on a piece of paper and um, the purpose of that writing is just to receive the feedback from the teacher not share with other students so so that when teachers say you need to develop your writing voice I, I think well how can they do that when there's no real reading audience and the purpose is just the the mark that they get so if they understand that Within their blogs, they they have they should um, should view them as their own space, and I teach them the importance of developing their bio so that there's something about them um, that other people other people who find them can understand a little bit about what they're interested in, what their backgrounds are, um, and then strangely enough. Um, I connect them with the class colleagues because that's not even happening. So, so the class for a change is actually um, the students are learning about each other in their own class, and that wasn't happening before. And then I, um, and then I share what they write with my own communities on Facebook or Google Plus or Twitter or Scoop It, and 
and then they realise that real people come in. And um, and also, for example, in an art class, when I teach them about Pinterest, um, I tell them it's not just a search engine, but um, they understand that um, it's inhabited by people. And as soon as they realise that when they're looking for resources to inspire their art and find people who are curators of um, museums and galleries and people who are designers and people who actually live and breathe art and design, um, they're connecting to those people and they can actually um, see who those people are following. So, so I think in a subtle way at least those students understand that it's about people and and that and that's I don't think that um, all of the teachers understand that they think that when I'm um, they're they're using blogs with their students that they're ticking a box for using some sort of technology but really it's a lot more than that and I'll, I'll stop now I was just gonna make a very quick observation about um, how Across Asal, Simon, and Tanya, there's this focus on the actual students, and then there's also the focus on authentic learning experiences. Like for both Tanya and Simon, we're talking about how the students want to connect in authentic ways with each other, and and that those ways are usually outside the structure of what normally would happen in the educational institution. And Tanya's talking K-12, and and Simon is talking university, but it's actually it's this it's this moving outside of that and talking to real people and and what Sam does with his students is he connects them to people outside the class as well. Um, and um, I'm going to move over to Tanya Lal now. Talk about what we do at Econtext. Hi, thanks, Maha. Um, yeah, I, I sort of found what Tanya uh, Sheko was just saying there about um, student blogs and and um, how student blogs are kind of you know the students' place. Um, really interesting in the context of um, what we're actually trying to do at EdContext as well, because I guess um, at the at the at the root of that, what what it is 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 um, we're basically trying to encourage um, educators to uh, share their um, their own stories about uh, their practices and um, what they do within their own teaching context. Um, and it's a similar thing that Tanya Sheko uh, is talking about. Um, in terms of um, providing educators with a voice, um, but also then being able to actually share that voice and amplify that voice across our own networks, and, and in doing so, sort of bringing um, other people into the conversation. Um, so um, that's that, that's sort of a lot of what I've kind of learned about being involved in ed contexts, um, and. Uh, and, and I guess the other thing is that, um, you know, it's, it's also an appreciation of the fact that, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be an educator in order to actually uh, share uh, a perspective about um, learning or teaching. Um, and uh, we've had um, that something that uh, kind of made me really realise this was um, when our friend, um, our MOOC friend, uh, Tony Rose Pinero, um, was talking about. Um, feel free to feel free to respond to the child. That's okay. Absolutely. Sorry. Feel free to respond to the child. It's okay. <laughs> Is isn't that someone uh, on your side? Oh, Simon. okay. Yes. Oh, you can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry if you need to Hold respond. Yes. We'll 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 continue. Yeah. Don't worry. 
Sorry. I thought you wanted to say, okay, Tanya, are you back? Okay, okay. anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just going to make one, one final point in that, um, uh, yeah, yeah, something that sort of made me realise uh, that, you, you know, you don't necessarily need to be an educator or an academic to kind of share a story about learning or teaching um, is when um, our sort of friend Tony Rose Pinero um, uh, wrote a, wrote, was thinking about writing a post for Ed Contexts and um, she wasn't really sure what to write about because, you know, she was, she was suggesting that she was only a master's student. But, um, but she actually wrote a re really amazing post for us and, and, it was, um, and it was really just about her sort of experience as, as a student and kind of finding her way in the world. Um, and, you know, we, we, I guess, you know, what it made me realise is that we all have a perspective on, on learning and teaching. We're, we're constantly sort of, um, um, in everything we do, we're, we're sort of in, in a context where we're sort of learning, um, even in conversation, everyday conversation, um, in, you know, as, as parents, as, as um, roles that we sort of have within our um, organisations. Um, and. Uh, you know, as, as friends and, and family members. So, um, yeah, I guess that's what, what we sort of try and encourage with uh, Ed Context and, and looking at context in a really sort of broad, uh, broad way. Especially, I guess, trying to connect across contexts, which, which kind of adds a new dimension to not only one context at a time, but multiple contexts at a time when we're engaging across these borders, right? Thank you. Uh, who, who wanted to add um, after this? I was wondering. If, if anybody, anybody was trying to go after this. Oh, I, I was going to uh, raise just um, something that I saw or heard in the last couple of folks who've, uh, who've uh, contributed. Uh, um, one of the things I'm hearing is this kind of the context, that I, or at least what I'm taking from it is that, that it seems like most of us are thinking that the, the context of learning really isn't in the classroom, hardly ever. Um, mm -hmm. That is, that's just a space that we are all kind of get together. But... Mm -hmm. A lot of the learning, maybe most of the learning, and I really feel like in my own classrooms, I, I um, over the years, have tried to capture this in some way um, or work from it or work with it, that most of the learning is happening outside the classroom. In fact, I, I'm, I'm sure I've told my students this um, uh, uh, about every semester or quarter. Uh, and the ways in which I try to do that, I, and I, I was, uh, when, I can't remember who was, who was mentioning it, um, uh, maybe it was uh, Tanya, uh, about P Pinterest and getting students to use or think about Pinterest in terms of research. I was just thinking about that the, uh, today, in fact, um, uh, because my, my wife and I use Pinterest for other things. Um, but I realized that this might be a really good way to capture some of or get a glimpse at some of the labor of research, um, uh, depending on what Pinterest can do. I'm not, I, I'd have to look into it more, but I was just thinking about it because I use other tools like Twitter um, to, to capture labor. Uh, and Google Docs as well to capture labor or get students to be reflective about the labor patterns and the labor practices that they do when they write and they and they provide feedback and when they um, uh, read for my class so that we very uh, um, in some ways empirical about how much work we are actually doing. Um, a lot of when people talk about some of the some of my the things I, I suggest they say they always say a South trying to um is trying to assess students by their effort. And that's really not completely true. Um, what I'm trying to do is assess by labor. 
that's not the same thing as effort. <laughs> um, so I, I think that, um, so I'm, I'm always trying to find creative ways. And I think a lot of the technology today that allows us to see learning and reading and labor, the labor of education happening away from the classroom is really the, showing how contexts uh, cross all the time when we're, when we're talking about learning. Uh, they cross at the diner or at the job or on the bus or at home or when children are behind talking when you're trying to do stuff. <laughs> um, it's it's really um, uh, uh, I think an important part of learning, and in fact, we, if we were if we can tap into more of that, that is more of those contexts. That's one of the things that I really try hard to to um, help with my students and look with my students to do is look at their labor journals and look at their labor tweets each week and try to figure out patterns and figure out what it is they do when they read for the, our class or what it is they do when they read and respond to their peers um, uh, drafts um, what are they what what physically are they doing and, and what is the most productive ways in which they can do that not technologies not just uh, processes um, but where are they how do they feel what do their bodies feel like when they're doing these things all the all that who's around them all that kind of stuff and we reflect upon those things but I think um, things like Pinterest and, and, and Twitter and other things I think um, uh, uh, that are just emerging will be I think will be really important in capturing this um, for me it's, it's labor it's capturing labor um, but anyway th to me that labor for me spans goes across uh, these contexts quite a bit because that's what we're doing all the time right we can call it work if we want I don't like that term very much I like labor because it has all these other different meanings than just work so but that's me uh, uh, anyway, I'll uh, let others respond now. Um, okay, um, Simon, did you want to add the, um, the the idea about scoop it and things like that, or no? Um, yeah, what I would say is the following: is that um, what we try to do is we try to bring into the classroom area all the things which the, the kids can actually demonstrate competence or passion. So that could be music. So for example, uh, we had a, a girl who, who who'd, uh, told me that she played the guitar and she sang. Well, I thought, fine, you come in and you sing, uh, you sing and you uh, do something in English. And this was a moment which captured on YouTube, because this is the other thing which has been very key, is the, is the smartphone use in the classroom, is to capture all these moments. And so we have this uh, video of her singing to this class on YouTube. And uh, at the beginning, all the kids are speaking, you know, oh, there's some girl going to sing in English. After, I think, about five seconds of her opening her mouth, there was a sort of shock of the, all the kids, and she really could sing. And so that was one example. But I think it's this business of capturing so that they can then actually share these moments with other people. And I think that's really crucial that we teach them to capture. And year after year, the stories which we have with kids who maybe at the beginning they didn't understand what we're trying to do with them. They want a class with a book and exercises because they've been doing that for 12, 15 years, they want to have the same system. So it's very difficult to actually change. They, they feel very destabilized by that. Even the ones that are really bad at working within the, uh, the system before. 
So we have to find ways to, to, to year after year, to make them understand that this actually is not the classroom they're used to. This is not the learning they're used to. And that's, that's why that capturing the stories, capturing the YouTube videos, capturing the tweets, capturing the uh, photos of the kids up a, a mountain or in a swimming pool, outside of the classroom, that's key. Because if you can get them in a moment where they're proud to share, you're winning. And I think that the one, one thing which really brings it home to me was last, I think, the, the, maybe three or four years ago, uh, there was a group of students who spent 40 hours working on a video which they made during the class. And those kids, before, they would never, ever have done any work, ever. They would have gone into the exam with their anonymous amphitheater exam paper, and they would have done no work, none. They did 40 hours. I said, why did you work so much? And they said, well, because we liked it. They had never made a video in their lives. Now, that video has done the, <laughs> the tour of Europe and is going across the world because people love it. It speaks to other kids of their age. And no, now those people are, are going to, I think three or four of them are going to be teachers this year. And I think that's the key. I think that we have to view this in terms of the long term. This is not, I'm just going to do this for one year. This is over a period of 30 years. We have a responsibility for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. This is not just my class this week. So if you can c c capture just one positive moment, uh, like Maha, for example, 27 seconds of singing happy birthday to Maha captured on SoundCloud changed these kids' lives. They had never, ever sung happy birthday to somebody in Cairo ever in their lives before. It took 27 seconds. So that actually was a really good demonstration to other teachers who now we're trying to draw along to say to them, well, you don't have to change anything, everything. You could just sing happy birthday to somebody, and that would make their lives better for, you know, for, for three minutes. Even if it's just that, that's better than just going into your classroom and turning to page six. So I think it's capturing those real moments where people are really happy or really sad or really angry, the moments where the students went on strike because they didn't like what we were doing, etc. Capture them, take the photos, get them to capture the photos. And when they do that, they, they start tweeting with uh, Carla Arena in, in Brazil to say how good, how much they love, they love us surfing. Mm -hmm. It's just extraordinary. They, they, one, they really understand it. If you, if you open the door, they understand it and then they become your best friends. I think Terry earlier, there's a question from Terry earlier. I'm wondering if um, we could ask him uh, uh, to sort of help us better understand the question. The question is, does breaking down through context mean breaking down of context? I was wondering if you could help us to better understand that question before we respond. Who, who, who wants to go next? Um, very in interesting conversations here. We are quiet, productive silence, as I call it in, in my classes. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say a few words then, because uh, uh, I ha have a, a really short response to this. I, I mean, I think 
just in some ways that's true. Um, that is breaking. I would po I would actually pose a question before it, which is, what's the purpose of breaking through some context in order? To, and then, so why would we want to break it down? And I think breaking it down to me seems pretty pretty easy for me. I when I want to do this, or what I what I think I'm trying to do is again, I'm trying to get in the mind of the person asking the question. I think it means understanding what that context what context means. Um, so in a way, we can think of it as um, understanding the significance of a context that for our learning, if we're thinking about a classroom. Um, and then we can understand whether or not it's important to break through it or reconstruct it. Um, I, I, these days, I, again, I'm thinking about, I think more about ecologies than about context because ecologies are moving and they're changing and it's mostly about motion and it's about um, uh, lots of different um, uh, elements that work together that when you add them up, they're more than what the sum of their parts. So for me, uh, that's maybe one way to think about breaking down a context, um, but I'm really thinking about an, uh, an ecology because that's that means to me that's more productive for me. Uh, it looks like we are having sound issues on the on the side of Maha, and if uh, that's that continues, I'll, I'd like to um, convey what you're typing, Maha. Um, but yeah, regarding the breaking down context, I'm thinking the context is a com composite of a many different things: the people in it, the um, material, the method, the medium. Um, so by breaking down, I also see this as like looking at the different components in it. Um, so if a technology is not working, the time, the language, the perspective, the power, the relationship, all of these things come together to make communication work. A lot of times when uh, educators themselves uh, think about connecting, they are connected to, let's say, 50 people around the world, and then sometimes they assume that this is the case for students. Not really, because students may be hesitating. They may be un not used to it. They may not be interested. They not, may not be. They don't have. May not have the means, the connection. You know, all kinds of barriers. And this pos potential is not possibility. And potential possible or possibility is not um, the same as actually doing it. You know, the, not privilege. So it, I, I think it goes from potential and possibility to privilege to actual actions and actual outcomes. So uh, we should not be sort of, you know, superficial about, oh, I'm connected, why not? I have friends around the world, so so can you. Not really, because it needs a lot of confidence. It needs the means, it needs the time, it needs the power, it needs the privilege, it needs the, right, voice, uh, understanding. Uh, so we actually need to do the hard work of connecting, hard work of helping our students cross context, helping our colleagues cross contexts. Once they, you know, know better how things work, how how to connect across context, then people will do it. The thing is we can't just generalize from ourselves. I think we need to go back to what Asao was saying in terms of the inductive method and instead of generalizing based on what we know. I think we really need to engage, you know, individual students, educa educators one-on-one, -on -one, and, and be facilitators, and I think that's what we're trying to do with the ed context and, and right now. Um, Maha, did you type a question or something I, I can't see yet? Um, Somebody does, wants to talk more about the breaking down context. Did we respond to Terry Elliott's question well? We only have five more minutes. That's covered. Yeah. You want to cover? Very very quick. Okay. Very quick uh, response on that. I think I think for me the 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 problem is the question. 
I think that the, 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 this idea of breaking down context, that gives the impression that there is a, there is a boundary which is the context. For mm -hmm. me, this is not context. Mm -hmm. For me, context is a series of strands which are moving through a space at a particular moment of time. This could be one example. Uh, this could be disruptive in certain educational contexts because they would like to have a uh, technology which they're controlling, like Blackboard, for example, which they feel they're controlling more than, than Google. So that is one way that these strands are actually breaking, but we're, we're not the ones that are doing the breaking, we're simply following the strands. And I think, I think that the, the work which has been the most important for me was the Scullans, so that's Scullan and Scullan, mm -hmm. and they wrote, wrote a book called Nexus Analysis, mm -hmm. and the words they use is discourse. There are a series of discourses which run, which run through any particular space, which you first analyze and I think that that's that is this idea of breaking down context no it's constantly being broken down and and challenged by different technologies or different discourses from from uh, from companies in different places so I think that's the thing that we have to eliminate um, Simon did you notice the question that Maha just posted because her sound is somehow uh, disconnected. Uh, she was she was saying as in context in holistic and dynamic rather than fragmented terms. That is, maybe you, you already did. If you did, it's okay. I'm not sure the word fragment is is the one that I would use because fragment has this idea of it's broken into pieces. No, I think it's it's a question of strands which are moving through a particular space at a particular moment in time at different speeds. Mm, mm, mm. Anyone else? Yeah. We, we do have two more minutes. Yeah, Asal, yeah I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, add to what Simon said. I think I like, uh, I, I like that um, and I think that's probably the best way that I've um, tried to think about it. I, I like that. I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't focus on breaking down as much as I think about contexts are always reconstituting. They're always constituting themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe it's the constitution of contexts, the creation of contexts that are always happening already, and we just have to pay attention to them. Tanya S, can you please share with, uh, uh, the, the thought, the note that you are sharing on the on the uh, chat? I, I really would like our audience to. Oh, I do agree that a context is something you have to pay attention to. So it's always there, uh, but how often do we actually see it? And um, you know, in terms of teaching and learning, our context is the individual, the student, and the learning. And it's, so it's coming from the inside. It's coming from that core. Um, and and of course, the student has many contexts. And I think that um, as soon as we bring out, allow our students to articulate their own contexts, then they're going to connect. Um, then they can have real conversations. But unfortunately. Um, from what I see, it's all about teaching content. It really isn't about coming from the student, and I'd like to see more of that happening. Any concluding thoughts, notes, reflections? Other colleagues, please. In that case, then, uh, this wraps up the uh, final session of the July series. 
thank you everyone for a great conversation and thank you to the audience listening to us and audience in the future who listen to uh, this video. There will be a full video recording of the webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv uh, with other curated content um, and also ways in which you can share those um, content in your networks. Um, so as I said, this is the final um, webinar of the July series. Um, but please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter about these issues and also please um, join future webinars and series. Um, if you found this conversation helpful, please um, share it with your network and if you'd like to know more about the upcoming webinars, please go to connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter. Thanks again everyone for a great series this month. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day.